Good, good, all right. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you are. You are welcome to the family of Jacob and the sale of Joseph with Rabbi David Silver. This is a continuation of his ongoing Genesis class from earlier this spring and from this fall and you know going back. Uh, it's a pleasure to have Rabbi Silver back to have Rabbi Silver learning with us. Um, we this series will uh, continue for about five sessions and then we will pick up continue uh, and continue a little more after, more after Shavuos. And if you are if you are following along with your own Tanakh, that is excellent. You please um, open your Tanakh to Genesis 35 and 36 for this class. Um, if you would like to follow along in Sparia, I will post a link to that in the chat very soon. And if you are, and if you want, and if you, per, but if you prefer to read along, this the, this will be um, given in a shared screen. And with that, Rabbi Silver, good morning. Okay, thank you very much. Welcome everybody. Start a new round. Um, I speak from Yerushalayim, and uh, good to be able to connect through Zoom. Okay, so um, the we're going to be focusing. We've been moving through the book of Breshit, and we're going to be focusing mostly from here on in on the story of Yosef, which really begins in chapter, in earnest in chapter 37. But I just wanted to sit, set the table for us before we jump into chapter 37. And that is that we, we all remember that Yaakov, who was forced to run away from home in chapter 28, Upon leaving the land, took a vow. Yaakov said, if you take care of me, protect me, feed me, clothe me, bring me back in peace to my father's house, you will be my God. By that, Yaakov meant not only the God of my father, grandfather, or whatever, God of my parents, the God of my grandparents, but my personal God, and that is Yaakov has took a vow, as it were, to do something no one else had ever done to that point, which is to build a family in which every member can be included, a kind of inclusive structure. The term Yaakov used for the inclusive structure is the word bayit. So Yaakov has promised to build the bayit, but that's conditional, Yaakov says, upon being able to return in peace to my father's house. And in fact, when God speaks to Yaakov in chapter 28, it's pretty clear that it won't be that simple to return. God said, I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to protect you. <coughs> I'm going to protect you. When someone says, I'm going to protect you, guard you, bring you back, etc., I won't abandon you. Then we start worrying. And in point of fact, it wasn't so simple for Yaakov to return. That was our study in the past about the challenges that Yaakov faces in the house of Lavan. But eventually he does leave Lavan's house. Then he has another challenge. He confronts his brother Esau, of whom he is very afraid. He has to make his peace with Esau, which he does. And now, having made peace with Esau, in the end of chapter 33, Yaakov sets up an altar, makes peace with his uh, brother. And then, when things would appear to be all right. Here we have in chapter 34, the story of Dina. The story of Dina is problematic in many levels. 
Those of us in the class of the past have studied it, studied it together. And finally, Yaakov is, who was very frightened at the end of the Dina story that the surrounding nations will destroy him and his family, family, but God protects Yaakov. Yaakov goes to Beit El. And God once again says that your name is not Yaakov, your name is Israel, Yisrael, Shemecha. And God promises Yaakov possession of the land. God promises Yaakov a dynasty of leaders, kingship. Back in chapter 35, that's the promise. And then Yaakov, in response to God's promise, in chapter 35, in the 14th verse, sets up another pillar, Matseva, and names it, he names the place Betel. So things seem to be moving smoothly. All that remains for Yaakov to do, actually, is to fulfill his promise, which is, in the narrow sense, to go back, to, I mean, to go back in peace to his father's house. If you return me in peace to my father's house, then Yaakov promised to, to build the house. Here he sets up a pillar. He calls the pillar Beit El, the house of God. This place in which the pillar is set up is Beit El. And the end of chapter 35, in verse number 27, in fact, he goes to his father. That's Bayavo Yaakov, Yisroka, Aviv, Mamre, Kiryat, Arba, Ki Chevron, Asher, Gersham, Avraham, Yitzchak. So, in fact, he does go to his father, in peace to his father's house. And then the Torah then tells us of the death of Yitzchak and the burial of Yitzchak. We'll get to that in a minute. But in between, the setting up of this pillar and naming the place Beit El in verse number 15, two things happen, which actually, I would say place, a, 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 if not a cloud exactly, question mark over Yaakov's ability to build the Bayit. The first thing that happens is that Rachel dies. That's in verse number 16. Rachel dies in childbirth. His beloved Rachel dies in childbirth. And it's not just that she dies in childbirth, but that the Torah then tells us a story about the death of Rachel. So I want to just pick up, pick that up, beginning in verse 17. And then we'll get to the second incident. Then briefly discuss Esau, and then we will jump into chapter 37 and begin the story of Yaakov and Yosef, Yosef and the brothers. 17, we are told by when she was having trouble, this is verse, chapter 35, verse 17, 35, verse 17. So as she was uh, labor was very difficult. Don't be afraid, for it is another son for you. She informs Rachel that she's going to have another child. Rachel had prayed for another child. Rachel had said upon the birth of her first child, she had prayed for this child, and sure enough, she's having a child presumed the way she had anticipated because she's going to die in childbirth. But the midwife, you have a child. 
And in verse 18, as she was dying, as uh, she breathed her last, she named her son Ben Oni, the son of Oni. We'll get to that in a second. And his father, Yaakov, named him Binyamin Benjamin. Rachel died. She dies on the road path to Ephrat, near Bethlehem, or now Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her grave. And that is, says the Torah, the site of the pillar of Rachel's grave to this very day. So the Torah has informed us of the death of Rachel. The woman that Jacob wanted to marry at first, his first love, one, one could say. She has a child, but she dies in childbirth. And here, in, on reflecting on the story, apart from the tragedy of Rachel's death, well, there's something interesting over here about the birth of this child. Because the mother, Rachel, names the child Ben-Oni, and Yaakov changes the name. Now, the change of name, the giving of a name is significant. The changing of a name is very significant. In fact, just a few verses earlier, Yaakov's own name was changed by God. God said, your name is no longer Jacob, your name is Israel. And in chapter 32, Jacob's name was also changed by this mysterious being. But God changes Jacob's name in chapter 35, verse number nine. But beyond that, even apart from that, there's something else very striking about Yaakov changing the name. And that is that the first 12 children that Yaakov has in the house of Lavan, the 11 boys and girls, who are given names, not a single one of those names is given by Jacob. It's remarkable, generally speaking, in the Torah, sometimes the father gives the name, sometimes the mother gives the name. But in the case of Yaakov, he has 12 children, and in none of the cases does Yaakov give the name. So it is quite remarkable that here, actually, in his, in his last child that's born to Jacob, as far as the Torah records it, it's here, Dafka, that Yaakov gives the name, not just gives the name, he actually changes the name. So we have to understand clearly, why did Yaakov change the name? What is, what's the name that Rachel gives him, Ben-Oni? And what is the name that Yaakov changes? What is the connection between the changed name and the initial name? Here the commentaries, are wondering, the classical medievals wonder what Ben-Oni means. So the, basically, we have Rashi and the Ramban. Rashi says Ben-Oni, Oni, Rashi thinks means my sorrow. Son of my sorrow, Ben-Oni, it's Rashi. The Ramban thinks that Ben-Oni can mean, can mean strength, possibly means strength, we ain't onim. It's not clear that it, can, it means only strength. And Yaakov changes the name. He keeps the meaning of strength, but he, he, he connects the strength to Binyamin, to the son of my right, son of my right hand, the son of my right side. 
and Yemini could be seen as my, that, that which supports me. And the Ramban thinks he names him the son of the one who gives me strength, which is the son of God, actually. Neither Rashi nor the Ramban, though, connects the word Ben-Omi to a different Hebrew word. I don't say this too often, but in this case, I'm quite certain this is correct. Maybe the Ramban intimates it, I don't know. But the word Oni, in my view, was related to the word Arf Vav Nun, which in the Genesis story is typically negative, and which was related to the word Oven, which means sin. Son of my sinfulness, Ben Oni, son of Oven, my sin, and the sin to which <coughs> Rachel refers is the sin of stealing the Trophim. <coughs> she stole the Trophim to have a child. Everything Rachel does in her story is to have a child. And the Trophim, the gods of the idols of her father, which Rachel takes, I, I would say she is not an idol worshiper in the sense she believes in idol worship, in the idol. But on the other hand, one could see her as using all avenues in order to secure the desired result, which is the child. She prayed to God, Yosef Hashem li On the other hand, you want to hedge your bets. And therefore, she also takes the trophim. She takes them both. She has the trophim on one hand, and she has the prayer to God on the other. And now she has a child. And one could see the name Ben Oni, son of my iniquity, son of my sinfulness, as a kind of confession. I took the trophim to have a child, and the trophim perhaps answered me, but not in the way that I anticipated. So that's what I, and Yaakov will not abide that name. Yaakov prefers, Yaakov doesn't want his son to be called the son of my iniquity. Yaakov prefers to say Ben Yamin, the son of my right hand, which is perhaps even to say that Rachel had also prayed to God, Yosef Hashem Ben Acher. And Yaakov affirms Rachel's earlier prayer by naming the son Binyamin. That this interpretation is quite plausible, is clear for many, for many different reasons. I'll mention a couple of them. First of all, what's interesting is that the word oven, Aleph Vav Nun, appears several times in the Bible in connection with the word Trafim. The most notable of them uh, is, of course, Shmuel's statement to King Saul, Saul being a Benjaminite, a direct, a direct descendant of Rachel. And when he refuses, when he fails to abide the mission of follow the rule of killing Amalek, the way Shmuel had told him to do it, Shmuel says to Shaul in chapter 15, Chatat Kesem Meri, your rebellion is like Kesem, it's like divination. Your refusal to carry out God's word fully is tantamount to oven utrafim. We have throughout the Bible, several other places, the expression oven utrafim. So it's clear to me that what we have over here is a name which is called a confession. And what Yaakov is doing in changing the name then, Binyamin, is saying, in effect, I'm going to, <coughs> <coughs> this son of Rachel is part of my family. 
and therefore can't have a name, Ben Oni, I include him by giving him a different name of Binyamin. And perhaps he's saying, and we'll see this later in this book in Breshit, he's, he's saying more than that. He's saying that I also find a way to include Rachel. Rachel dies by Derech. Rachel dies on the path. Not fully back yet, but not in Lovin's house either. Rachel dies by Derech, the Derech Ephrata, right? The word Baderech appeared in chapter 35 earlier as well. Let's, or did it not? Let's see. No, it appears only. No, it appears only in this verse. It appears. It appears later in the Torah. And when Yaakov tells over the story in Parshat Vayechid, Rachel died Baderech on the pass, on the way back. So, the question is, how, how does one view Rachel? How do we view Rachel through the lens of Sefer Breshit? Do we view her as one who's stuck with Lavan, Lavan's idols? Or do we see her as one who had broken from Lavan, is on the path back? One can see it either way. And what Yaakov chooses to do here and there, later on, is to see it as she's on the way back. She couldn't make it back. She died on the way back. But we include Rachel within, within, the, within the family. And we include Rachel, and we include Rachel's son, which is Ben-Oni, which Yaakov calls Ben-Yamin. Here's very interesting about the death of Rachel. That the story of the death of Rachel, actually, uh, has a parallel in the book of Shmuel very precise parallel in the book of Shmuel. Let me see if I can briefly just mention. That would be Samuel. Let's see. First Samuel, Shmuel, Aleph, I think it's chapter four. Is it first Samuel chapter four? Let's see. First Samuel, where are you? First Samuel chapter four. Yes. The end of chapter four. Shmuel Aleph, the very end of chapter four, and um, beginning in verse 19. The story is that the priests, the sons of Ewi, are the priests in Shiloh, and they are uh, very problematic. They engage in, uh, they rip off the people, they abuse the people, they abuse God, they take their portion first. And God is determined to rid the people of the house of Ewi altogether and to kill sons of Ewi. And Israel takes the ark to battle, and the ark is carried by Chafli, the sons of Ewi, in four of Shmuel. And the ark is captured, and the are killed and outed in the, the war. And Ailey, the high priest, is waiting to hear what has happened. And it's verse number 12 of chapter 4 of Shmuel, 1 Samuel. A, a, a messenger comes from the battlefield. It's very striking. It says, ish A Benjaminite ran, came in from the battlefield in verse number 12. That's very striking that the Benjaminite comes and he comes to Shiloh. 
clothing is torn. Eli is waiting for the news. Eli is blind. He's waiting for the news. And finally, Eli doesn't know what's happening. Uh, he's waiting, but he hears, he hears people in the city screaming. And he wonders, what is, the, what is the noise that I'm hearing? He can't see. Verse number 15, he can't see. So this person, this Benjaminite, <coughs> tells Eli, I've come from the battlefield. What happened? He said, I've Israel, and Israel has suffered grievous losses. Your two sons have died, and the ark has been captured. And when the messenger mentions the ark being captured, Ailey falls backwards off his chair and he dies. He breaks his neck and he dies. He's an old man and he dies. That's not the end of the chapter. And then in verse number 19, we have a little vignette. Little vignette in verse 19. So let's read the little vignette. It's a wonderful example of what we call intertext, the connection between texts. The connection is self-evident, actually, if you know both stories. And the question is what to make of the connection. It says, It says, his daughter-in-law, Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Pinchas. Pinchas is one of the two sons of Eli, the corrupt priest. She was, ex she was about to give birth. It's like without the Dawit. But she heard the news. And that her father-in-law and husband had died. He this terrible news. And she were she she uh she was crouched down and she gave birth. She was seized with labor pains. So she's giving birth prematurely. And in those days, that was extremely dangerous. As she is dying, the women standing around her said, don't be afraid. You've given birth to a son. But she paid no attention. She named the child. Ikavod, Ikabad. Ikavod means no glory. She named her son no glory. Laymar. Saying, Galak. Galak Kavod be Israel. The glory has departed from Israel. Referencing taking of the ark, the holy ark had been, the ark of God had been captured by the Philistines and concerning her father-in-law and her husband, the high priest and his son, the death of her husband and the high priest, Eli. Next verse, last verse of the chapter, and she said, the glory has departed from Israel. The ark of God has been captured. That's the little vignette beginning in the story of Mrs. Pinnis, who dies in showers, giving birth prematurely. Anybody's the story 
who knows the Chumash, cannot help but of the story. <coughs> Sorry. The story of Rachel. It, unavoidably, it's two stories are very, very similar. What, there aren't too many women in the Bible who die in childbirth. I don't think there are any others altogether. And in both instances, there's somebody around talking to her. In the first instance in Rachel's story in chapter 35, it's the midwife. In the second instance, it's the women standing around. Of course, in the second instance, it's not the midwife because she wasn't expected to give birth yet. So there's no midwife. The midwife is there at the appointed time, but this is premature. There's no midwife. So the women standing around. In each case, the words, though, of the women standing around or the midwife are words of consolation. That's where the stories are similar. Now, where do the two stories differ? In our story, she and another parallel to the, the two stories is obviously that in both stories, the name given is a negative name. Ben Olam of my iniquity is a negative name. And clearly, Ikavod, uh, non-glory, glory having departed. There is no kavod. And the word kavod, by the way, refers typically often in the Torah to the presence of God. So there is no presence, right? God is not, God is not, the non-presence. So those are negative names. Now what is the difference between the ten? Notice, by the way, that in both, in the story over here, the, the one who informs everybody is from Benjamin. It's also striking. A Benjaminite ran from the battlefield, right? Let's look at the story in Shmuel. She named the child Ikavod in verse number 21, for two reasons, for two reasons. She gives two reasons. The ark has been captured and the death of her father-in-law and her husband, right? But then we have verse 22. But it starts, and she said, she made another statement. To exile people, for the ark of God has been captured. And in verse number 22, she mentions only the ark. She doesn't mention the husband or the father-in-law. So what is that about? So I'll make a suggestion and I'm happy to hear what anybody wants to add or suggest. The point is that what she's saying is the significance of the story in the book of Shmuel, that the Ark has been captured. The significance is that the institution of Shiloh run by the priests, by Ewe, by his sons, <coughs> the temple of Shiloh is, is destroyed. Shiloh will never come back to life. It's the destruction of Shiloh, which is parallel in a sense to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The prophets compare those two. Sheol was the central temple of Israel. The glory is gone. And the point of verse number 22 is she, <coughs> she reiterates, she emphasizes, no, the glory is gone. That's gone. Because in fact, she repeats what she said in the previous verse 
in conjunction with the Ark of God. The glory has departed from Israel for the Ark has been taken, which reaffirms that the Ark is taken forever. But it also says something else. You can't console me. You can give me consolation. Life and death, you know? Uh, that's life. People die. And children are born. And um, <coughs> so the birth of the child, in some sense, can be seen as <coughs> can be seen as consolation. But the capture of the ark, she says, for that there is no consolation. Shiloh is permanently, forever, destroyed. And what marks the destruction of Shiloh actually is very striking. What marks this destruction <coughs> is the very name of my son, Ikavod, Ikavod, no glory. In other words, Ikavod is a living testimony to the fact that in fact, Golok Kavod Israel, the ark has been permanently set aside. As far as Sheol is concerned, there is no ark. <laughs> so what makes this story very powerful is the contrast to Yaakov. The case of Yaakov changed the name. Yaakov finds a way to include, not lost. We don't see this child of Rachel as, as not part of the family. Yaakov finds a way to include him. But in the case of the Book of Shmuel, of course, the Book of Shmuel is replete with all these brilliant moves on the part of Sefer Shmuel. And by the way, there's an exact parallel. I don't want to get into Shmuel too deeply here, but there's an exact, it's in, it's, it's, it's in the book that was written recently, Malchut Adam, those who have the book and read the Hebrew. There's an, ex, there's an exact parallel to Ikavod in Sefer Shmuel. What is the parallel to Ikavod? <laughs> the one who is who is the the one who is whose name represents the fall of the institution. Ikavod represents the fall of Shiloh. It's another fallen institution in the book of Shmuel. What's the next institution to fall in the book of Shmuel? Shaul. The king. King Saul, of course, Shaul. What is the, who is the person that represents the book of Shmuel, the demise of the house of Saul? Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, of course. And how do you know that? And apart from the name Mephibosheth, terrible name. What's the story of Mephibosheth? <laughs> he doesn't get to eat. He no, can't. He's not he supported. No, no. He's disabled. He has. Uh, He's disabled. He He's yeah. limping. How come? What happened? Was he born that he way? He was dropped. He was dropped. He was dropped. dropped. When? when? When they were running. Away. When? When he, they were running away. He was dropped by the nursemen. She heard that Shaul was you, killed. Yeah, you get there closer and closer. Why? Why? Why were they running away? That is what it says. I have many nice things to say about this, but, yeah, but he's running away. His nursemaid runs with him when they hear of the death of Saul and his sons. 
it's exactly parallel to over here. Here's the death of Eli and his sons. In the case of Saul, it's the, the nursemaid is carrying Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son. It's exactly the same as Eli and Pinchas. It's exactly parallel. Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul, who was injured. The nursemaid drops in when she's running away after she hears of the death of Saul and his sons, namely the death of Saul and Jonathan, which is exactly parallel. So the book of Shmuel, of course, is a typical example of the Sefer Shmuel. There's, there's like a thousand brilliant touches in the book. But the point is that the two institutions, Shiloh and Shaul, have loads of parallels between them. This is one of them. But all this is by contrast what we have, by contrast, that what Yaakov is trying to do, actually, in changing the name, a male name, none, none of his children, 12 children, no names. It's unbelievable. But now he actually changes the name. And this says something about Yaakov, I think, and Rachel, namely, that we should not think of the death of Rachel as the end of the Rachel story. No. Yaakov, who up to this point has taken zero responsibility for his beloved wife, is going to try to make things right. That is to say, he's going to find a way to include Rachel. He's going to find a way to include Benjamin, Ben Oni. The only thing he has left for Jacob to do, which is a good introduction for us, is to find a way to include Joseph. That he's got to figure out how he's how, how he's going to include Joseph, the viceroy of Egypt, with the name Tzofnat Paneach, married to the daughter of the Egyptian priest, works for Pharaoh, dresses like the Egyptian, etc. How do you include him? Jacob will find a way. That's very, that's the parable story. We'll get there someday. Okay. <laughs> so that's the first story of 35 that we have to bear in mind. And now there's another story in chapter 35, in between meeting it. Well, let me, before the other story, let me stop and take comments and questions here. If there are comments or questions. Um, I'd like to highlight something that came up in chat. Um, from Ozzy or Orbach mentioned that here, I guess, in the case of Ailey, in there is no father to change the name to something more positive. There is no? Father. Right, there's nobody, that is true, that in the case of Ailey, uh, Ailey and his son, more. there's nobody else. Well, you there's no one who can step it? in there. Right, I think that that's the text is telling us. That is some, I'm not sure okay. if this is a good thing. I don't think it's important one way or another. It's no, not important. It's, it's not important. <clears throat> but, uh, no, I'm not hearing you. <clears throat> could, I, I'd like to <clears throat> ask, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> ask a question about, um, the 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 pasuk and Shmuel because uh, where she calls him Ichavod it says Lemor whereas in the next pasuk it says Vatomer and I, I would be inclined to read Lemor as a parenthetical rather than her announcing it maybe she was thinking it or maybe it's an attribution but the public uh, meet the public reason is the Taking of the ark. That could be. I don't know if that's that right. I mean, I don't know if we more. I don't know if that. I'm asking. Is this a? You have any sense if this is a uh, a difference between? Very possible. 
can often mean to think, to say. Yeah. I presume that. <laughs> I don't think that one way or the other affects what I'm saying, though. No, no, I don't think I'm just. There is. Yeah, it's a good question whether way more means thinking to us, <laughs> which is a good interpretation, I think. This is what she's thinking. This is her thought. And then she says in the next verse, the, the arc is, you know, the arc is, is okay. the arc in fact is captured. You know, it's the fact is what she's saying is something, I'm going to get dragged back into Shmuel, but what she's saying is the truth. If in fact the ark has been captured, there's a problem. That's what she's saying. God is the ark. If God allows the ark to be captured, then that's a sign that God has rejected Shiva. The parallel, by the way, is a parallel to that as well in the book of Shmuel, and a very good one. And that is when King <coughs> when King David brings the ark. Right, King David brings the ark to Jerusalem chapter 6 of 2nd Samuel. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, says to him, she insults him, right? She sees him dancing with the people. Remember what she says? Uh, oh, how much glory you have. Hashem Nigla, who revealed himself. Right? Essentially, she says, well, you're dancing like a, like a, like a lowlife with the, with, the, with, the, with the slave girls. What is this? You have no sense of honor. Kavo, the, 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 the glory, the honor, the reverence of the position seems to have departed from you. To which David, nastily, but truthfully says, listen, God who chose me over you and your father's house, right? That's, that's how I derive the glory. Imami, with the low, those low lives, right? With them, I will find glory. Now, who's right, David or Michal? And the answer is, David's right. How do you know David's right? Because the ark has come. Because in point of fact, is the ark. So the, the, the very fact that the ark has arrived, right? The ark has returned, is a demonstration that Golok Havod is not right. But Mrs. Pinchas is, prophetically says the truth. Shiloh is doomed forever. Now we know that already from the book of Shmuel, God has said it. I, I, I rejected Shigo. But Mrs. Pinchas makes it clear. But my point is, when you read Shmuel, you do get, then looking, looking at our story, you appreciate what Yaakov is doing. The name where Yaakov is stepping in and saying, one second, this guy never named anybody, say, no, no. I'm not gonna let it sit this way, no. Benjamin is my son. Benjamin is part of the house. Benjamin is very important. So is Rachel. So we're going to give him a different name. <coughs> Binyamin. We'll come back to this later in Vreshim. Anybody, <coughs> anybody else for comment? Rabbi Silver? Um, yeah. is, it's Sandra. Yeah, hi. Um, is there a, a connection by the fact that also with uh, regard to the death of Rebecca, uh, while it isn't connected actually to the birth of, of, uh, of Jacob's children, we see the nursemaid and the implication of the death of Rebecca. So um, there's the, the implication, that slight connection again to these stories, the death life cycle and the, um, and the nursemaid 
as a proxy, um, uh, how important she was if, uh, with Methy Beauchette, part of part of partly a catalyst in what happened. Um, but also uh, the, the nursemaid is is a character, not like in sometimes in the Gemara where you know the, the person knows more than the than the, the or knows as much as the rabbis in the um, Beit Midrash. But I think that she's not so much a liminal character, but she's she appears. It's almost like if she's not there, we have to look for her. Is that so? Could be. But I mean, my, my point over here had more to do with the problematic side of it. That. The question the Chumash is asking, which is a real question, is can somebody who steals idols hmm. and who dies because of it, she dies because be she included, stole the idols, be included. Uh -huh. can we find a place for her <coughs> within the family? And my point is that Yaakov, I think, is saying yes. Yaakov is claiming that he wants to sort of attempt to keep Rachel in the fold. And not just Rachel, but Rachel's children as well. I think he sees that as one of his important missions. Isn't it? Isn't that it also, side of the family is problematic. Isn't it also significant that she prayed to God? In other words, she wasn't. Um, she wasn't. Uh, she was. She wasn't monolithic in what she did. She wasn't only an idol, an idol thief. For sure. She. She For also sure. uh, her first initial. Her initial. Uh, yeah, first, she asks Jacob to ask God for children, and then she goes to the Drosh Hashem. So. You know, in a kind right. of way, you know, in, you know. Sure, I totally agree that she is. That's how Yaakov chooses to see it. Fundamentally, she was seeking God's help. Yes. People out of desperation do all kinds of things. That's the yes. that's the, out of desperation. But fundamentally, he prefers to uh, judge her favorably. He gives okay. a, a generous assessment of Rachel, and of course, the later prophets be even more generous generous assessment. But yeah. Sure, it's sort of setting up the stage for the future in this larger question about the family. So that's one story, and then we have. <coughs> <coughs> Let me just wait one second. Let me just get some um, water or something. I'm just recovering yes. from a little illness here, so just one sec. I'll be back in ten seconds. Yep. We'll be back. Yep, we'll be back soon, and I guess. In the meantime, do um, I just want to guess remind people quickly since we're having discussion and all these great questions? Um, if you are not actively speaking, can you mute yourself? Because otherwise, you know, if you have background conversations or, or street noise or whatever, we'll hear you. But I don't know. Otherwise, it's been great to see everyone back. Will the second class start this Thursday? Uh, yes, yes. Rabbi, yes, the class that Rabbi okay. Silver had postponed will be starting. Will be starting again this Thursday. And please keep your ear to the ground about any extra classes on added on at the end. Yes. Um, can I can I okay. ask you a question? Um, yes. Um, yes, certainly. Oni, um, when she would say it, wouldn't would it have sounded the same with an aleph and a vav? And an i. Uh, yeah, an aleph and an i, exactly. No, I don't think so. I think those are. They're the no, same. Sephardim don't, they, the Sephardim don't pronounce them the same, and I'm sure that the accurate, the ayin has a more of a guttural. A guttural, right. Ashkenazim pronounce them the same. How they pronounce it in those days, who knows? In the dictionary, it's the same. I'm sure right. it's not the so same. Right, so we have no idea how Rachel, when Rachel said it, right? 
It's written Alevav. We know why it's written. That's what we know. Right. It's written Alevav Nun Yud. It's written um, with uh, of it. Oh, the word own is a negative word. Joseph marries the daughter of Cohen own, right? It's just, it's, right. It's, own is negative. There's, there's no question. It is true, as the Ramban says, ain't onim, own can mean strength. That is true. But in right. the book isn't, of Genesis, own is bad word, okay? Isn't, re, isn't Reuven called Reshit Oni? Isn't Reuven called Reshit Oni? Right, that's sort of my strength, right. That is strength, yeah. That's true. There you have strength. That is correct. That is in Genesis. That's right. But, but overall, with an iron, it could, but but what? with an iron, it could be stripped of every anything. Oni is also a negative word, and we always interchange Aleph and iron very often, very often. Right, you may interchange them, but they're two separate. They're, they're related words. Oven, they both mean sinfulness. Oven is a sin, and mm -hmm. oven with an Aleph is a sin. Uh -huh. That's true. All right, but there are two different letters. But in any event, it doesn't really. The point is, look, the fact is, Jacob changed the name. Right. If it were a wonderful name, he wouldn't have changed it, right? Obviously, right. he's also very negative. By the way, in the in the in the prophetic writings, several times you have the contrast between Beit El and Beit Oven. You can go check it with your concordances. Beit El and Beit Oven. I just in Michal and several of the prophetic writings. Beit El and the opposite of Beit El, God's house, is Beit Oven, which is very striking. And of course. Jacob has promised to come back to Beit Ale. And in Beit Ale, you can't have, it's what Jacob said in chapter 35 to his family, get rid of the idols. We're going to Beit Ale. You can't have idols in Beit Ale. So yes, Rabbi. the medievals and others are very, want to see Rachel most favorably. We all do. But in point of fact, she does die in childbirth. And now there's something else about dying in childbirth, which is this. The story of Rachel, <coughs> the story of Rachel, it's all about her desire to have children. Her sister has children, she has no children. And in the beginning of that story, in chapter 30, she goes to Yaakov. Give me children, she says, or else I'll die. And Jacob says, what am I, God? He gets angry. He gets angry at Rachel. What am I, God, who's prevented you from having children? Rashi looks at that. Rashi says, I prevented you from having, I have plenty of children. You, 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 you got a problem, lady. What do you want from me? That's how Rashi reads it. Right? He's punished for that reason, says Rashi. But the point is, one could only wonder, as one often does in life, what if he had spoken differently? What? Because at the end of the day, she dies having children. So in other words, the, the question is, if you're Yaakov, you're wondering, if, you're wondering, no question, all these years, you know, and when the trophim were taken, whoever took it should die. He didn't say we're all responsible. He said the one who took it, that's their problem. They should die. And now she does die. And she dies, I think, not because she believes in trophim, but because she's a desperate person. Desperate people do desperate things. And now if you're Yaakov, you have to wonder to yourself, if I had acted differently all of these years, would we come out with the same unhappy result or not? I have no answer to that question. But I do believe that uh, the story of Yaakov and Rachel does not end over here, and the way it begins over here. So I think Yaakov is set out on a path now to find ways to include Rachel in, in the bayit. Rachel is 
incredibly important to be in the bayit, as is Yosef and Binyamin. Without them, you have no bayit. And Yaakov will set out to include them. And as we'll see when we get later on in the story, he uses the same device in both stories. Here it's changed the name of Benoni to Binyamin. And later, of course, once again, the Yad Yamin will figure in the story of Benash and Ephraim. But we'll see the parallels there. And the way after you see them, they're obvious. And the question is what to make of it. This will be Yaakov's mission. That's one mission he has. Now we have another story here. Another story. And that is that we're told Yaakov's traveling. By in verse number 20, uh, 22, he travels to Migdaleda. By he Yisrael so we have this very un unhappy story. Israel is staying in the land of Migdal Eder, right? This is after the death of Rachel. And when he was living in that, in that land, Reuben went and slept with Bilah, his father's concubine. Israel heard about it. A Yishmael Yisrael, he heard it. And there's no mention of any kind of response. Rather, the Torah then lists off all the sons of Yaakov. Beginning with the children of Leah, the first of whom is Reuben. And it sounds like, even though Reuben did something very problematic here, he's included amongst, amongst, amongst Yaakov's children. Um, now the question is, why did Ruve do this? What is Ruve sticking over here? If, if it involves sticking. Um, was the play meaning of the Chumash, obviously, is that he actually sleeps with, by Yishkav S, doesn't even mean consensually, by the way. He sleeps with his father's concubine. You could also say with his father's wife, because Bilha is one of, is, is, yes, maybe she's not, she's not Rachel and she's not Leah, <coughs> but sometimes we think of her as a Pilegesh and sometimes <coughs> we think of her as a wife what was Ruvain's thinking over here and then I'll get to the, to the, to the Medrash about, about this but Ruvain's thinking it takes place after the death of Rachel so there, uh, in the, I saw in the commentaries two main opinions over here <coughs> There's Rashi and the Ramban, really. One is, what is that Ruben simply doesn't want Yaakov to have <coughs> to have children. Because he's the firstborn, he gets an extra portion. He gets a double portion, that is two portions out of the total. So if there are 12 sons, let's say, then there are 13 portions. He gets two thirteenths. If they're 18 sons, he gets two 19s. So, um, you know, that's, so he loses out. The more kids, the, and now Rachel has died. Maybe he's not so concerned about his own mother's side of the family, but he wants to disqualify Bilba from having any more children. <coughs> so, so he sleeps with her, and the Rambas, that's what it means by you, Yaakov, Shnei Masar. There are no more children born after him. After this, there are no more children. 
That's one approach. <laughs> and then we have the other possibility, the other approach, which is not so much that he's concerned about his portion, but he doesn't want, once Rachel has died, he says, says or thinks to himself, it's one thing when uh, Rachel was alive, she was a rival of my mother. But once she's gone, why should there be any vestige to, of, of Rachel left? Bila, after all, is Rachel's concubine. Each, each wife had a concubine. Leah has Zilpah and Rachel had Bilha. Rachel was the one who initiated the idea of giving this woman to Yaakov as a wife. So the attempt over here, of attempt, the act of Ruvain is a statement made in defense of his mother. That essentially is the different approach. And it ties in, they both tie in with the death of Rachel, but the second one in particular ties in with the death of Rachel in terms of Ruben sort of advocating for his mother. And this position, I think, which I like better, has to, is supported to some extent. If we remember the story of the, of the, of the, of the mandrakes, the Dudaim, there it says Ruben went out to the field and he found mandrakes and he brings them to his mother. Mandrakes are a fertility pill. So he's getting in the fight between Rachel and Leah for Yaakov's affection via the children. This, this particular son of Leah gets involved in that struggle. One should not get involved in, it's not his business, but he brings them to his mother. <coughs> in fact, Leah said to Rachel, when Rachel says, give me some of those mandrakes, and Leah says, isn't it enough you took my husband? Could you take also the mandrakes of my son? It's my son. He's on my team. What are you, what are you trying to do? Trying to, you know, snatch one of my key players? She took my husband already. So this actually is interesting in terms of looking at Ruben as somebody who sees himself, maybe because he's the oldest, as somehow a peer. Not a son, but a peer. And this idea of sleep, this, this incident of sleeping with your father's wife, we have this later, of course, in the book of Shmuel. That's what Avshalom does. And there, clearly, it was an act of displacement, an act of hostility. It's the son saying, I'm going to take over from you. You're not the king anymore. I'm, I'm the one in charge. I'm not suggesting we go that far in the case of Ruvain, but clearly it's very problematic. Now, of course, we all know that within the Jewish tradition, which, you know, piece of which, small piece of which, attempts to uh, mitigate the crimes of our heroes, even some of our non-heroes. So Rashi cites over here, the Medrash, that Reuben didn't actually sleep with his father's wife, but rather, says Rashi, he moved her, he moved her, he moved her bed. Bilbao, he Bilbao you to he, he he literally mixed up the beds. He didn't actually. I don't know if Rashi means he moved his bed out of out of Billa's tent. Maybe that's what Rashi has in mind. But actually, I find that actually very interesting. Interesting is the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra cites this Madrish and says, it's interesting. Cites the Medrash, says, 
The rabbi said he moved the bed. And that's a wonderful thing to do, he says. And he quotes the verse, it is best to cover up embarrassing things. So the Ibn Ezra doesn't for one instant believe that's actually the shot. But he phrases Chazal to trying to cover up what is manifestly the shot in the puzzle. I don't think Chazal ever believed for a second that that's what it means. But I think that this actually is a very interesting idea of moving the bed. And I wonder what it means because we have to remember that the whole story of Rachel and Leah to begin with, how, what in the world happened the first night of marriage, right? Something strange took place. He thinks he's marrying one woman and he ends up sleeping with a different woman. So the idea of to mix up the bed is not so innocent even in, even in the uh, rabbinic statement. There's something interesting about the rabbinic statement. But the point over here is, getting back to our bigger project, is that this incident is, raises all kinds of questions about Yaakov's dream and maybe Yaakov's ability to build the family. Because chapter 35 has his eldest son sleeping with one of his wives, no matter how you explain it, whatever it is, it certainly is a hostile act. And in the previous chapter, we have Shimon and Levi getting into a quite bitter argument with their father. So chapter 35, now the, the, the oldest three sons of Jacob have expressed their, either by word or by deed, expressed their unhappiness with Yaakov's behavior. And this is the Yaakov has to build a family out of this. So it raises a question for us, even before we get to the Yosef story, it raises the question, how will Yaakov be able somehow to bring all the pieces together? The Chumashia does suggest he will be able to do it by you, but Yaakov's name Masar. Jacob had 12 sons and it lists all the names. But again, it certainly does not eliminate the question we all have about how he will be able to do that. Okay. Before I just complete chapter 35 and say a word about chapter 36, if anybody has any comments or questions Rabbi, in terms of this introduction to our study. Rabbi, yes. Do you think that Yaakov knew that Rachel stole the Trophim? Do I know Trophim? No, it's, it says he, he doesn't know. He didn't, doesn't know. It says explicitly, Rachel, Yaakov, lo yadak, Rachel, Gnavatam. He has no idea. Even he doesn't after, think she stole them. Even afterwards, okay. changing the name of Benoni. So he didn't connect Benoni to the stealing of the Trophim. I don't know if he connects it or not. I don't know. We, the readers, certainly connect it. That's for sure. Um, I don't know. But I mean, but let's put it this way. The stealing of the Trophim my point about stealing the trophim is two points. One is that the trophim is, is negative in its own right, but there's something else about the trophim, which is she didn't steal and she didn't take any old trophim. She takes Lovin's trophim. And my, my point about taking the father's trophim is that to me it suggests a, a, a kind of connection. It's a kind of connection to Lovin. Even the way she tells him off, which is, you know, Father, I'm sorry, I can't stand up. There's the cleverness of Lavan. There's always, 
it's speaking the truth, but it's never the truth. So there's something about Rosh. <coughs> something about Rachel. Unlike Rivka, Rivka is different. Rivka is not connected to that part. I mean, she's connected in a different way later with this, with the with the birthright, the blessing, with the blessing, you know, with the with the tricks. But she's not deeply connected. She's able to leave, and with Rachel, leaving is not so simple. And I think that so on one end she's sort of stuck back there. On the other hand, she's she left. And my point is that Yaakov will, I think, and this to his greatness actually, that's what Yaakov will be able to do. Yaakov, is, Yaakov will figure out a way that everybody, the wives, the children, everybody finds their place. Not that everybody's a saint, not that anybody is perfect, including Yaakov, but that's the human condition. Yaakov will find a way somehow to make it work. He has to he has to square himself with Lavan, he has to deal with Asav, he has to deal with the family, all kinds of problems. And he's, 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 he's at the heart of the problem. The, the jealousies, the, the competition, the favoritism and all that. And what this story does over here, it simply sets out the problem. I mean, you have Rachel, you have the Trophim, which is not disconnected from Yosef. Yosef is in the time. Yosef is words of me, she said, and Yosef is an Egyptian. And how do you how do you somehow bring Yosef back? That's what Yaakov, one of Yaakov's missions will be. Is you need Yosef, Yosef is great. So how do we bring him back? And he's also problematic. He will the way <coughs> which he will do. Okay. Let me just uh, just read a couple more verses at the end of chapter 35. Um, so Yaakov comes back to Yitzchak, Shafti B'Shalom of Beit David, and Yitzchak dies at 180 years old, 180 years old. And the last verse of chapter uh, 35, by Yitzchak, by Yamad, he died, gathered unto his people. So he is buried by, <coughs> by Esau and Yaakov, his sons. It's actually very interesting over here. Like for example, Abraham was also buried by his sons. Abraham's death is recorded in chapter 25. I'll read it to you. He also dies in ripe old age. Um, this is in chapter uh, 25. Verse number uh, eight. So there, it's interesting, same thing. Both his sons bury him. But the, interesting is the order. Then the case of Abraham, Yitzchak is mentioned first. Yishmael was mentioned second. He loved them both, clearly. But first, Yitzchak, his primary covenant, his only covenantal son. And uh, then Yishmael. But over here, it's very interesting over here that Esav is mentioned before Yaakov. Now, we know that Yitzchak loved Esav. That we do know. And Esav certainly loved Yitzchak. He revered his father. But it is striking that Esav is mentioned first. So, I did want to mention one point about 
Asa being mentioned first, which is that this is the last verse of chapter 35. And now we get to chapter 36. In chapter 36, it's a long chapter, long, long chapter, it's 43, 43 verses. And chapter 36, which we're not going to spend much time on at all, but chapter 36 is the genealogy of, uh, of uh, Asaph's family. There's several very interesting, interesting pieces of chapter 36. Maybe we'll go back to it at some point, but I'm going to sort of leave it for now. But what the chapter 36 is, Ewa Todot Asaph, 43 verses. Chapter 37, chapter 37 is, Vayeshev Yaakov, Vieretz Megurei Aviv, Vieretz Canaan, Ewa Todot Yaakov. These are this, this is the story of the line of Jacob. And then in chapter 37, the Torah doesn't give us the name of Jacob's children. It's already given us the names of Jacob's children. But chapter 37 starts with a story. This is the generation, the line of Jacob. The first one is Yosef. Yosef was 17 years old. And this is very, very typical. We have in Sefer Breshit, very typical. Sefer Breshit consists of stories and genealogies. Genealogies. It's really a bunch of genealogies, but the Torah, when it, it has a, a deep interest in a particular person, it stops the genealogy and it tells a story. So when it comes to Esau, he gets a nice chapter of his own, chapter 36, 43 verses. It's a bunch of names, etc. But it doesn't really tell us the story. It gives us the names. As opposed to, in contrast, to Yaakov, that's a different story. With Yaakov, the Torah stops and it tells us the story. And the reason for this actually, I mean, we all know that Jacob is the hero of the book, but what's interesting is another contrast between chapter 36 and chapter 37. Esau comes first. And the reason Esau comes first, the Ramban says it, is very simply, the blessings of Esau the blessings of Jacob. Jacob's whole life is his life of suffering. Esau's life is a life of, of, of great wealth and power. In fact, in chapter 36, it's very striking that in chapter 36, in verse number, uh, was it 30? I can see it in this line. Verse number 30, 30 I think it is. 30. 31, verse 31, chapter uh, 36, verse 31. These are the kings of Asa, the kings of Edom, who were kings before there was ever a king in Israel. It's a very striking verse. These verses suggest that the Torah knows of kingship in Israel. Let's leave that out for now. But how many kings are there? How many kings of they, they reigned before there's a king in Israel. They're eight. Maybe next week we'll spend a few time on some of these names of the kings. They're very interesting. But once again, it's the same point. Asaph has a country. Asaph has kingship. Before Israel even has any kings. Asaph had eight kings. Edom. Asaph has eight kings. So the blessings of Asaph precede the blessings of Jacob. Jacob's, it's what we say in the Passover Haggadah. And Isaac had two sons. And I gave Ace of Mount Seir as a possession. Yaakov Uvana of Yordan Mitzrayim. Ace of possession is in his own lifetime. Ace of has a country. 
And that is found in chapter 36 in verse number six and verse number seven and verse number eight. Very instructive verses. his children, his daughters, his sons, his daughters, all members of his household, all his possessions, all his flocks, all possessions, all animals, everything he had acquired in the land of Canaan, and he went to a different land on account of his brother Jacob. For the possessions were too great to permit them to allow to be yachtav together. The land of their sojournings could not contain them on account of their cattle. Esav dwelt in Mount Seir. Esav is Edom. So Esav leaves. What it, what it means the land can't abide them both, it's a big land, good question. But chapter 37 begins, Vayeshev Yaakov v'yeris m'gureyavi, in contrast to what it says about Esav, but Yaakov did dwell in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations, the line of Jacob, and now we have a story. So when it comes to Esau, who comes first, there's a bunch of names, but there's no story. The Chumash is not, it's not a story the Chumash has an interest in. The story the Chumash has the interest in <coughs> is the covenantal story. That's the story of Jacob. Esau is certainly important. Esau <coughs> has his blessings in contrast to Jacob. Esau has his own land. It's a land that God, in fact, gives him. The Torah makes this point in the book of Devarim. Don't start up with, with Edom. Don't start up with Esau. Because that land belongs to them. I gave them that land. I gave them that land. And just to conclude with the following observation. What is the proof in the book of Devarim that God gave Esau their land? That's what the Torah says in Devarim. I gave Lot Moab their land. Don't start up with them. I gave Ammon their land. Don't start up with them. I gave Esau his land. Don't start up with them. And I'm going to give you your land. That's your land. Everybody has their own land. The proof in Sefer Devarim, it's very striking. The proof in Sefer Devarim is that before Esau was there, a different nation was there. The name of the nation that was there in the book of Devarim that preceded Esau is called the Chori. And the Chori are so powerful that if Esau dispossessed them, it had to be with God's assistance. And actually, the idea of the Chori, Esau and the Chori, being somehow connected to each other, is one of the main subjects of chapter 36. Because in chapter 36, we have, verse, beginning in verse number 20, These are the sons of Seir the Chori, who, who once dwelt in the land before Esau, before Esau. And it gives the name, starting with verse number 20, the clans of the Chori, all the way down, including up to it, including verse number 30. So that already is anticipated here in chapter 36, that Esau's land belongs to Esau, 
Esav's land is the land of the Choritz, their land. Esav's blessings take place in Esav's lifetime. Esav voluntarily leaves the land in chapter 36 on account of his brother. He doesn't want to settle in Canada, get his own land. Fine. But he doesn't have a story. Story is not important to us. But chapter 37, which we'll begin with next week, <laughs> Jacob dwelt in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. Told now, this is, this is the line of Jacob, but we're just going to start with a story. The story, of course, is from here to the end of Reishit, the story of Joseph, one of the great stories of the Bible. And that will begin with next week. So I wanted to uh, welcome everybody back and uh, good being with you if virtually. Um, I did want to mention one thing that I am teaching another class today. Started last, it's a class for geared for writers, but it's uh, everybody's welcome to attend. And the topic, it's last week was an introduction. The topic is one that should interest everybody, David and Bathsheba. So last week was an introduction. And actually, if you anybody did want to join at one o'clock Eastern today, you're welcome to come. And we're going to be studying the first verse of David and Bathsheba. So if you missed last week, you could still attend. Hey, thank you. Kaylee, have somebody else to say? Uh, yes, I just want to highlight another class happening later tonight. Uh, at 8 p.m. Eastern time tonight, we will, we will have a class with Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Zikir starting the scope of Torah, Agada, Normandy, and, and Mada, um, which is on looking at that Torah is simultaneously one of the most important conceptions in Judaism and one whose scope is extremely difficult to define. And we're going to end, we're going to look at that a bit. If you are interested, you can sign up for this class and others at drisha.org. And if you are, and if you have, were signed up for a Rabbi Silver's class that was supposed to start last Thursday, that this class is on for next Thursday. And we'll see you then.